Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. The title to our message this morning is Battle of the Gods. And as you're turning there, please remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, that this is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword." But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God." Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, when you told the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy to dead bones, and you asked him, will these bones live again? He said, you know, Lord. And Lord, we certainly have deadness in parts of our life and parts of our spirit and parts of our mind and heart this morning as we come before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would, would prophesy now to these bones, that you would raise us up, that we would hear your word and live. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. So last time that we were together, we saw the Lord meet with Aaron and Moses in the wilderness. Aaron meets up with his brother after a 40-year separation, and he was glad to to meet him, and he became his comrade in arms, so to speak. Moses tells Aaron about his mission. They both go to the elders of Israel. They tell them the words of God. They show them the signs of God. And Israel, at the very least, had this temporary faith in God's promise. They bowed their heads. They worshiped. And 
Thus the Exodus begins. Now this morning, we find Moses and Aaron in Pharaoh's palace, and there's a couple things that we don't know. So we don't know if the elders of Israel accompanied them or not. That was what the Lord commanded back in chapter 3, verse 18. We don't know how this meeting was even set up, how these slaves come to meet with the most powerful man in the world, other than God said it would happen. What we do know is that here in this passage, we are faced with the most fundamental question in the whole book. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? As one author puts it, quote, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge, who has the authority over the people of Israel, and ultimately over all nations and all of creation. Is it the God of Israel or the God of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh? End quote. So this morning, the whole Exodus is set up. Which word will prevail? Thus says the Lord or thus says Pharaoh? Who will be worshipped, the king of heaven or the king of Egypt? And so the battle of the gods begins. So here's our three points this morning. We're going to look at a profile of Pharaoh. Number one, we're going to look at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Number two, the religion of Pharaoh's soul. And then number three, the cruelty of Pharaoh's scheme. So let's begin with the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And let's look at verse one together. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Book of Exodus talks pretty extensively about Pharaoh's heart. Some 19 times the Lord tells us about the inner workings of Pharaoh. Above all other considerations, Pharaoh's heart is at war with the Lord. Consider this in three distinct ways. First, Pharaoh is at war with God in his thoughts. Pharaoh is at war with God in his thoughts. He even refused to acknowledge the Lord. Halfway through verse 2, he says, I do not know Yahweh. And here he's not saying, I'm, I'm not aware of him. I'm, I'm ignorant of him. To know in Scripture is connected with intimacy. So in Genesis 4.4, it says that Adam knew Eve. When it talks about our salvation, it says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Genesis, or John 17, 3. So when Pharaoh is saying, I do not know the Lord, he's saying, I don't acknowledge him. I don't want anything to do with him. His thoughts were hostile to God. Secondly, Pharaoh is at war with God in his will. He's at war with God in his will. He refused to obey the Lord. End of verse 2. I will not let Israel go. And this is the pattern set up for the next 
nine chapters all the way to the crossing of the Red Sea, Pharaoh refuses to obey God even one time. God wills one thing and Pharaoh wills the exact opposite. His will was hostile to God. Thirdly, Pharaoh is at war with God in his affections. He's at war with God in his affections. He hated God. He held God in contempt. Verse 2 says, but Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? There's scoffing in this. It's, It's like what Pilate said, truth, what is truth? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? This is a rhetorical question. He's saying the Lord is of no importance to me. Who he is and what he says matters to me not in the least. And his hatred is especially seen when after he gives his cruel edict. Look at, the, look at verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Who is Pharaoh accusing of lying here? Well, certainly Moses and Aaron, but whose words is Moses and Aaron speaking here? God's. Pharaoh is calling God a liar. His affections are at enmity with him. And so in summary, all of Pharaoh's inner man, what the scripture calls the heart, his thoughts, affections, and will, was at war with God. And so that brings us then to our our first principle this morning, the unconverted man is an enemy of God in his thoughts, affections, and will. The unconverted man is an enemy of God in his thoughts, affections, and will. See, Pharaoh here represents the unconverted man. Consider three proofs from Scripture that the unconverted man is just like Pharaoh. Proof number one, the unconverted man's thoughts are at war with God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from God, but considers them foolishness. The person who has not been born again, he hears God's word and he thinks folly, that's stupid. He doesn't spend any time reading it, discussing it, studying it, because it's a waste of time. Proof number two, the unconverted man's affections are at war with God. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Pharaoh loved the darkness, he hated the God of light, and that's true of every unconverted man. Proof number three, the unconverted man's will is at war with God. So his thoughts are at war with God, his affections are at war with God, and now we see that unconverted man's will is at war with God. Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Pharaoh refused to submit his will to the Lord, and that's true of every unconverted man. Now, one thing you need to know about the church is Jesus talked about it being 
full of wheats, full of wheat and full of tares. So in, in a body like this, perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're just kind of along for the ride, that you, that you know that you're not converted. You know that you're not a believer and you take issue with what I just said. You say something like, well, I'm nothing like Pharaoh at all. I'm not God's enemy. I may not be a Christian, but that doesn't make me God's enemy. Well, consider what you're saying. If you're not a Christian, you're saying that I don't believe in the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again for the sins of the world. If you're saying that you don't believe those things, then then like Pharaoh, you're accusing God of lying. Because that's the testimony of God himself. 1 John 5.10 says, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So if you're unconverted, how can you say that you're not God's enemy if you think that he's a liar? And Pharaoh's end here in the book of Exodus is a, is a warning to you, dear unbelieving friend. Pharaoh never turned to the Lord. He continued to resist and to harden his heart, and in the end, he perished. And if, unbelieving friend, if you continue in your enmity against God, if you refuse to turn to him, then you will die his enemy. And here's the, the most horrible news that you can hear. If you die an enemy of God, You will have no reconciliation after death. He will remain your enemy for all eternity. Pharaoh was drowned in the seas, carried down to the pit of hell, and that is true for everyone who remains an enemy of God. So I exhort you, dear unconverted friend, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is not the wrath of God yet. What we actually see is the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, and the long-suffering of God. God God could have wiped out Pharaoh the first time that he disobeyed, but instead, he keeps on coming back to him for nine chapters. Turn, turn, repent, repent, turn to the Lord. And that's, true for you, that God, your whole life, God has shown you patience and kindness. Don't wait for that mercy to run out. Embrace the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Dear congregation, for for those of you who already have been turned to the Lord, who have been converted, who have been once was an enemy of God, but now you're a friend of God, consider how this truth helps us to treat our enemies. God was kind and patient with Pharaoh. And that is precisely how God would have us to be with our enemies. Jonathan Edwards says here, Certainly then it will not become us to become bitter in our spirits, against those who are our enemies or who have injured us and treated us illy, though they have yet a bitter spirit towards us. God's treatment of Pharaoh, I think sometimes we go right to the end and think, oh man, he was wiped out. Yeah, 
But mercy, 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 mercy up until then. And that's precisely how God would have us to treat our enemies. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, But love your enemies, do good and lend, expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So that's our first point. Like Pharaoh, every unconverted man is an enemy of God in his thoughts, affections, and will. Let's look secondly at the religion of Pharaoh's soul. Notice how Moses and Aaron begin this discourse in verse 1. They say, thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. And this is the first time that a prophet ever speaks these words in Scripture. God said these words in chapter 4. This is the first time a prophet ever speaks these words, and it becomes the pattern of prophetic language throughout the rest of the Bible. But this formula was actually used by other gods. John Currid says here, quote, When Moses invokes that expression, he is employing a common Near Eastern formula to preface the commands of a deity. The Egyptians would have been well aware of that idiom because many of their own texts, such as the Book of the Dead, introduce the commands of the gods with the words, thus says such and such a god. It's an introductory formula that signifies that the words following it derive directly from the deity and they are not to be altered or changed in any manner. Pharaoh heard, thus says Yahweh. He understood this was a command that was not to be refused. He heard the message loud and clear. But Yahweh didn't just want their freedom. He wanted their worship. End of verse 1 says, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, alternatively in this book, he either calls it a feast or a sacrifice. In fact, in verse 3, he calls it a sacrifice. Which one is it? Well, it's not a conflict at all. It's actually both. Um, they were called to leave Egypt and offer a sacrifice to Yahweh to worship him. And this sacrifice was also a feast, a holy celebration. This is what all of redemptive history is aimed at. Because of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are aimed at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the feast of all feasts. So in the Bible, sacrifices and feasts, they go together. As one author says, the Exodus had the same goal as the Christian life, to glorify and to enjoy God. The point here, though, is that Pharaoh didn't merely deny the Lord's authority. He denied the Lord's worship. He denied the Lord's worship. Verse 2 who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Why should I let them worship? Now, 
What I want you to see here is that Pharaoh didn't deny this request because Pharaoh was an atheist. Imagine what Moses and Aaron saw when they walked into Pharaoh's court. Put yourself in his shoes or his sandals. What would you see around you? You would see hieroglyphics on the walls. You would see stone statues everywhere. And what were all of those relics pointing towards? All of Egypt's gods. All of them. You you would have seen the pantheon of gods. Aaron and, and Moses would have seen Osiris and Imhotep and Hapit and Atom and Thoth. Pharaoh himself was believed and worshipped by the Egyptians to be the incarnation of Ra and Horus, the Egyptian sun gods. So Moses and Aaron didn't come into Pharaoh's court and Pharaoh was an atheist. He was a polytheist. He certainly didn't deny God's existence. Uh, He worshipped many gods. He just refused to worship the true and living God. And that is really important for you to see. Because I think that one of the greatest lies of the last 100 years is that man can be neutral. Man can be non-religious. Man can be godless in his soul, in his psychology. Sure, the argument goes, there are many who worship this God and worship that God, but there's also the secular man, the modern man, the man who worships no God at all. That is a lie. No such man exists. And Pharaoh, again, represents how every unconverted man worships. This brings us then to our second principle. You've heard it before. It's not whether you worship a God but it's which God do you worship? Not whether you worship a God, but which God do you worship? The worship of a God of of some sort is an inescapable truth. So consider just two proofs from the scripture. Proof number one is the first temptation. Proof number one is the first temptation. How did Satan tempt Eve in the garden? It wasn't a temptation to stop worshiping altogether. It was a temptation to change who she worships. Don't worship him anymore. Worship yourself. Uh, Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Congregation, this is at the heart of every single sin. Children, boys and girls, this is so important for you to understand. Do you realize that the main thing that your parents are trying to do with you, the main thing that your parents are trying to disciple you out of, is worshiping yourself? Because that's what sin is sin is self worship. You were born worshiping yourself. You were born putting your desires, your wants, your passions above everyone else. And that even means God. Sin is self-worship. 
Sin is making yourself God. That's proof number one, the first temptation. Proof number two is that there has never been an atheistic nation in the history of the world, ever. There's never been an atheistic nation. Um, Isn't it fascinating as you read the Bible that you'll never find a nation in the pages of Scripture that didn't worship at least one god or multiple gods? The people of Sepharvaim, it was an Assyrian city. They worshipped the god Adramalek, 2 Kings 17.31. The Canaanites worshipped Baal, Judges 2, 11-13. The Philistines worshipped Dagon, 1 Samuel 5. The Babylonians worshipped Marduk, Jeremiah 50, verse 2. And then we get to the New Testament. The entire Roman Empire is given over to the worship of gods. The people of Lystra worshipped Zeus and Hermes, Acts 14, 11 through 13. The Ephesians worshipped the god Artemis, Acts 19, 27 through 28. The people of Alexandria worshipped the twin gods, Acts 28, verse 11. There's never been a nation or people group in the Bible, that didn't worship some god or some gods. And the same is true today. I think we get the idea that we've bought into this lie, oh, those boneheads back there, look at all these idols and things that they worship. We're so modern today. We're so sophisticated. We don't worship gods. That's a lie. Oh, my goodness. France, let's take the most secular humanistic state in the, in the world today, perhaps. France, do they worship a god? Yes, they are pronounced secular humanists. You know what humanism is? It's putting man at the center. It's putting man as the standard. It's putting man on the pedestal. It's the worship of man. Or think about China. Well, certainly, I got you there, Pastor Josh. They're atheistic and, and communistic. Yes, that's what they claim. Who's God in China? The state. The state, they control every part of your life. We could go on and on and on. Every nation has national gods. And I think that this is why the the Bible is so relevant. We turn to this text that's like, you know, 3,500 years old, whatever, 4,500. I shouldn't do math from the pulpit. It's it's really old. And what has been one of the big topics that's been in discussion on the national stage over the last few months? Dare I say it? Christian nationalism. Now, regardless of what may or may not be loaded into that term, here's the vital question. Should we desire and work towards having a Christian state where the nation loves to obey the words, thus says the Lord? Pharaoh helps us so much here because Pharaoh shows us that there's not a third option. It's either thus says the Lord or it's thus says Pharaoh. It's either the worship of Yahweh or it's the worship of Pharaoh. There's no such thing as a neutral, religious, free nation. 
Friends, what kind of a, a nation should we want? Should we want Baal nationalism? Should we want Moloch nationalism? Don't you see that that's what we already have? Did you see that story this last week of that uh, demonic woman goat that was placed on the top of that New York court building? The idols are already being lifted up. Yeah, we're really sophisticated. We don't worship like they used to back in those days. That's, that's why we pray for revival. That, that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because to follow the Lord is to feast. And to not follow the Lord is to be under slavery and bondage. Someone might say here, but shouldn't we hold the separation between church and state? And I would say, understood correctly, yes, absolutely we should. The scripture uh, talks about the, the powers that the church has, which are the keys of the kingdom, and the powers that the state has, which is the sword. And those two Powers shouldn't be transferred to, to different spheres. God delegated this for that and this for that. Amen to that. But the separation of church and state does not mean that we separate our state from God. Don't you see? That's precisely what Pharaoh was doing. Listen to what the late R.C. Sproul said on this point. R.C. Sproul. Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich and Joseph Stalin and his Soviet Union illustrate what happens when government rebels and declares an independence from God. Increasingly, we hear rhetoric from people in the government and in the press about the separation of church and state. What they mean is the separation of state from God. Their idea is that the civil government is not under God, but independent of him, and that it has its own autonomous authority. Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong in communist China all held the same assumptions. It's a fearful thing to see governments declaring their independence from God. Or listen to what Abraham Kuyper said, uh, 1837 to 1920. He was the pastor turned prime minister of the Netherlands. Quote, government is always the servant of God without fail among all nations in the person of all rulers and men of power throughout the ages. Government must acknowledge its calling to serve God and behave as an obedient servant of God. End quote. That's what Moses was calling Pharaoh to do, to be an obedient servant of God. But Pharaoh was unwilling to obey, and what did it do to his country? It brought absolute ruin. And this is what we desperately need to recover, that, that the Pharaoh of today, our modern Pharaoh, is just like the Pharaoh of old, is required to obey, thus says the Lord. Christians must stop believing the lie that there's neutral territory. We must rec recover our prophetic voice not only to individuals, but to the nations as well. 
Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth, as we heard in our greeting. So that's our second point. It's not whether you worship a God, but which God will you worship? So let's look finally then at the cruelty of Pharaoh's scheme. Pharaoh denies Moses and Aaron's first attempt. And so let's look at what they say next in verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Now here we see an implicit threat in Moses' request. Moses says, please let us go lest pestilence and the sword fall upon us. See, Moses understood from just the last chapter that he didn't have a right to disobey God and he knew what would happen if they disobeyed. But the implication is for Pharaoh, if you don't let us go, then Egypt is gonna suffer pestilence and the sword and that's precisely what happened in the 10 plagues. Well, how does Pharaoh respond? Look at verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Here we have yet another statement in the book of Exodus about the multitude of Israel. The people of the land, i.e. the Hebrews, are now many, Pharaoh says. What was Pharaoh afraid of here? Here you have this, whatever, 2.5 million workforce now not working. Well, we already know what Pharaoh's fear was because in chapter 1, the previous Pharaoh had convinced the people to commit them to slavery lest they lose their land because of the sheer number of the Hebrews, lest the, the Hebrews take over Egypt. Pharaoh, ironically perhaps, he could see that he was losing the culture war by the sheer fact that Israel was obeying the cultural mandate and Egypt was not. In spite of all of Israel's other failings, God was giving them families and lots and lots of children. The sun was, in fact, setting on Egypt's civilization, and it was rising on Israel's. And I think that this is so helpful to reflect on just for a moment. This isn't the main point in this section, but there are many evangelicals today that are despairing about what's happening in culture, all the destruction that we see Around us, and, and I would say certainly we should lament it, certainly we should pray against that destruction happening, but just ask yourself for a moment whose civilization is being destroyed? Is it the seed of the woman's civilization that's being destroyed, or the seed of the serpent's civilization? One author puts it like this. Anti-Christians are killing off their own futures through abortion 
and choosing not to have children. Homosexuality and transgenderism are folly and self-destructive. When men and women are cutting off their genitals to identify as the opposite sex, we must ask the question, whose civilization is coming to an end? Haven't you seen in recent years the panic that's happening around the world? In China, in 2016, they lifted their one-child policy. Why? There's just a report this last week. Hungary is now offering tax exemption uh, for life for any woman who would have four or more babies. Why? Because like Egypt, their civilization is coming to an end. If they don't reverse course, it's going to cascade into destruction. But whose civilization is being blessed by the Lord? Wasn't there a promise somewhere about the gates of hell never prevailing against the church? Now at this point, Pharaoh's anger completely boils over, and we were in the elders and deacons meeting the night talking about this text, and I think somebody asked, why didn't Pharaoh just kill him? Like, that would have been pretty wise, right? Just kill him. Um, He's the most powerful man in the world. He could execute them at any point, and I think it's true what Calvin says here that that God certainly was protecting them. But I would argue that it's not as though from Pharaoh's perspective that Pharaoh was being merciful or, or stupid. Pharaoh had a plan. Pharaoh's plan was not to make them martyrs and, and loved by the people. Pharaoh's plan was to make them enemies of the people. Look with me at verse 6 through 9. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them. And they will pay that they will pay attention, then they will pay no attention to deceptive words. So it's a misnomer to say that they were required to make straw or bricks without straw. What happened here is because straw was a necessary component in the brick making process to hold the bricks together, they were now required not only to make the bricks, but to go out and find the straw for the bricks. And here's where Pharaoh's cruelty is seen fully. See, by making this edict, Pharaoh was declaring that I am the only one to be worshipped. You have no time off to worship your God. I alone are the one that you're to serve. And this edict had three effects to it. The punishment, as one author points out, the punishment was calculated, number one, to discourage Moses and Aaron from ever challenging his authority again. Number two, to divide and alienate the Hebrews from Moses and Aaron's leadership. And then number three, to scatter the slave population throughout the land to reduce the military threat to Egypt. 
And all three of these goals were met in full, as we'll see next time. But that brings us to our last principle this morning. Oftentimes, stepping out in faith brings more pain before deliverance. Oftentimes, stepping out in faith brings more pain before it brings deliverance. The path to salvation is often a path of suffering. And this suffering here specifically comes at the hands of God's enemies. As one author puts it, when we make a stand in the Lord, we must expect to pay a price. Men will resent it, they will oppose us, and they will treat us as enemies. Consider two proofs of this from the scripture. Proof number one is things got worse for David. Things got worse for David. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David was anointed king of Israel. Because Saul was failing terribly. And he trusted that all of God's promises would be fulfilled in him. But what followed? Things got worse. Yeah, he had an immediate victory over Goliath. But then Saul turned on him and he spent years running from Saul in the wilderness. So when he made a stand for the Lord, David paid a price. Secondly, proof, proof number two is that things got worse for the disciples. Things got worse for the disciples. After Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples finally understood the power of the gospel, that God did not send his son in the world mainly to rescue them from the tyranny of Rome, but to rescue them from sin and Satan and hell. And so after the resurrection, they were like on cloud nine. What happened in the book of Acts? It is chapter after chapter after chapter of persecution culminating in 70 AD. Jesus tells them how bad it's going to get in Luke 21, 16 and 17. You will be betrayed even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. They took a stand for the Lord and they paid a price for it. God promised Israel deliverance. And Moses and Aaron believed him and they took a stand and then they and all of Israel are paying the price for it. Loved ones, are you paying the price for taking a stand for God in your life or, or perhaps you've been in that season or you can see that season right around the corner. You know that if, if I make this choice, if I say this to my boss, if I say this to my wife, if I say this to my family, that means this and this and this. Paying a price is inevitable. And if that's you, I would just say, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Scripture says, don't grow weary in doing good. Listen to what Spurgeon said in this place. He says, oh, servants of God, 
Be calm and confident. Go on preaching the gospel. Go on teaching in the Sunday school. Go on giving away the tracts. Go on with steady perseverance. Be sure of this. Ye shall not labor in vain or spend your strength for naught. Do you still stutter? Are you still slow of speech? Nevertheless, go on. Have you been rebuked and rebuffed? Have you had little else than defeat? This is the way of success. This is the way of success? Suffering? Why is suffering the way of success? Because suffering is the way of the cross. Dear friends, in your trial, in your struggle, in your testing, God is not being cruel to you or capricious. He is not a hard-hearted God. He is not ignoring you. He's teaching you very carefully the price that Christ had to pay for your redemption. Dear friends, salvation is, is not merely having our sins paid for and being given eternal life. Do you know what salvation is? Like, if you could put it in one sentence, what is the one sentence? Salvation is what? Salvation is knowing Jesus Christ, knowing the only true God, knowing the Savior, its intimate knowledge of him. And how do you expect to have that intimate knowledge of him if you're only going from mountaintop to mountaintop of victory? It's easy to know the victory of Jesus' resurrection, right? It's hard to know the defeat and the suffering of Golgotha. And God gives us these moments of, of suffering that we would know what it's like, that we would share in the sufferings of Christ. When we experience pain for a stand that we're taking, uh, for believing in him, we, we experience a glimpse, a glimpse of what Jesus suffered for us at Calvary. Don't you see? What are making bricks without straw compared to getting nailed to a tree? What are your small trials compared to the drops of blood that our Savior sweat in the garden. Take heart. God is working patience in you. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. He's teaching you what it, know, what it means to know him who suffered for our sake. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. See, that's the victory that's guaranteed. We already know who ex how Exodus ends. So fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. The battle of the gods has already been decided. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful.
to get glimpses of what your people suffered through thousands of years ago. And we can see that the same, some of the same things that they suffered through, we face. Some of the same challenges that they were challenged with, we're challenged with. So we pray for your help. Help us to praise you in the midst of the storm. Help us to boldly proclaim your lordship over every nation. Help us to realize that when things are getting worse, that you're helping us to know Jesus Christ better. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.